the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. This is Ghost Echoes, a history of music with secret rules. I'm Matthew Parsons. On May 28, 1974, the Portsmouth Sinfonia performed at the Royal Albert Hall. For some reason. The orchestra and chorus that assembled that evening were well aware that they were awful. In fact, that was almost the point. You can hear more about the Portsmouth Sinfonia if you go back and listen to Ghost Echoes number 5, but stay with me for now. I'll give you the basics, and then we'll move on. The Portsmouth Sinfonia was an amateur orchestra that played in public and recorded albums in spite of the fact that they barely knew how to play their instruments. They cheerfully referred to themselves as indisputably the worst orchestra in the world. There's video of this performance of the Hallelujah Chorus, you can see singers in the choir barely able to contain their laughter. Every so often, the camera captures a wince from one of the more prideful members of the string section. And at the edges of all this fantastic chaos, you can see the iconic layout of the Royal Albert Hall. The grand organ, the terraced balconies rising in huge ovals, and the enormous domed ceiling. It's true. This performance you're hearing right now happened at the same venue as iconic shows by everyone from Yo-Yo Ma to the Spice Girls. But that's not really so unusual. The Albert Hall is not Carnegie Hall. It's not an exclusive, prestigious venue where only the greatest may perform. What it is really is London's most historic gathering place a hall where thousands of people can come together for all sorts of reasons. To hear great music, to hear bad music, to engage in political life, or to witness a ceremony. Many strange and marvelous things have happened at the Royal Albert Hall. So today, in honor of the Portsmouth Sinfonia's live album, Hallelujah, the latest record served up to me by The Secret Rules, we're gonna comb through that history. Here are five extraordinary evenings at the Albert Hall. This one notwithstanding, this one's a bonus. Just listen for the trumpets at the end here.
March 29, 1871. The auditorium is filled with English mayors, military generals in uniform, aristocrats great and small. They've come for the opening ceremony of a glorious new hall, four years in the making. Twenty years in the making if you want to go all the way back to the initial plans. It had been Prince Albert's idea, naturally, the Queen's late husband. It was part of his plan to develop a big chunk of central London into a cultural hub of colleges and museums and performance spaces. Albertopolis, the skeptics called it. But after Albert died, at the age of 42, the nickname took on a less satirical tenor, and the construction of Albertopolis became one of Victoria's obsessions. She was there at the opening ceremony, wearing black, of course, as she'd done since Albert's death, and as she'd continue to do until her own death. Forty years in black. But when it came time for the royal statement to be made, Victoria was too overcome to speak, and the responsibility fell to her son, the Prince of Wales, to declare the Royal Albert Hall open to the public. The crowd marveled at the huge enameled iron dome, which had already been put together and taken apart once in Manchester to make sure it worked. And then they brought the pieces to London by horse and carriage and put it together again. Spectacular as it was, the dome revealed its shortcomings a few days later at the hall's opening concert. Arthur Sullivan, the musical half of Gilbert and Sullivan, wrote a cantata for the occasion, a huge work for full orchestra and choir. Nearly a century later, the hall's caretakers thought to improve the acoustics somewhat by installing big mushroom-looking things hanging from the ceiling. But at this concert, in 1871, London's shiny new hall echoed like a cavern. Nobody knows who was the first to make the joke that in this city obsessed with German, Italian, and French music, the Royal Albert Hall was the only place a British composer could be sure to hear his work twice. October 17th, 1912. Emmeline Pankhurst had just been released from prison. The suffragette leader had been arrested in March for throwing bricks through the windows of parliamentarians who opposed giving women the vote. She gave her first public speech post-imprisonment at the Royal Albert Hall. The Albert Hall hosted more than 20 suffrage rallies over the course of the movement. The press covered them with great interest and some sensationalism. For instance, one newspaper published an illustration of a young woman striking a male usher with a whip. I wish I could tell you that this happened exactly how you're picturing it. But alas, the eyewitnesses say she didn't land a blow before she was ejected from the hall with more violence than she was threatening. And on this occasion, the reporters gathered once again to hear Emmeline Pankhurst speak. If any of them thought that her time in prison would moderate her position, they clearly didn't understand the stakes. In her speech, Pankhurst proclaimed, I incite this meeting to rebellion. 
and she encouraged every woman gathered there to keep breaking windows, to keep marching in the streets, to find new and innovative ways to damage government property until they had no choice but to listen. Shortly afterwards, the suffragettes became the first political party to get banned from the Albert Hall. Five years later, in 1918, Pankhurst returned to the hall to celebrate her movement's victory. July 13, 1930. Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, died of a heart attack at the age of 71. A week later, he made one more appearance at the Royal Albert Hall at a public seance held by his wife. This, allegedly, is the sound of Arthur Conan Doyle speaking from beyond the grave. Full disclosure, this recording is not from the seance at the Albert Hall, it's from another seance four years later, because public seances were quite common in the early 20th century. Spiritualism, the idea that we can communicate with the dead, had taken hold of the English imagination. It's not hard to understand why. The First World War killed 20 million people in only four years. The Spanish flu killed as many or more. So when the magicians showed up in the town squares and said, all your dearly departed are actually still here, and you can even talk to them, people wanted to believe them. Wouldn't you? Arthur Conan Doyle was an early adopter of spiritualism, which may seem surprising given Sherlock Holmes' enthusiasm for deductive reasoning. But spiritualism and reasoning didn't have to be mutually exclusive, did they? After all, everybody sort of believed in ghosts to begin with, and these new spiritual mediums were just providing the sort of evidence that intelligent, modern people required to support that belief. If you could experience a communion with the dead, with your own eyes and ears, well, who was anybody to tell you that you were irrational? Arthur Conan Doyle experienced this for himself at a seance in 1918, when he spoke to his late son Kingsley, who had died from injuries at the Battle of the Somme. This one visitation was enough to confirm Conan Doyle's beliefs. When you have eliminated the impossible, and also the sad realities you're unwilling to accept. Whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Right? Ten thousand people packed into the Royal Albert Hall for Conan Doyle's seance. His wife, Lady Jean Doyle, sat on stage next to an empty chair. A clairvoyant named Estelle Rogers presided over the ceremony. First, she conveyed messages from a few miscellaneous spirits to win the crowd's trust. Then she honed in on the man of the hour. He is here, she said, glancing at the empty chair. A hush fell over the audience. He is wearing evening clothes. The medium addressed Lady Doyle. 
Sir Arthur told me that you went out to the hut behind your house this morning. Is that correct? Lady Doyle stood up, trembling. Yes, she said. It's impossible to know what further messages the ghost of Arthur Conan Doyle had to share, because at this point, pandemonium broke out in the audience, and the reporter for Time magazine who was there recording all this for posterity couldn't hear anything more. But we can imagine that Lady Doyle left the hall that day satisfied, knowing that her husband had proven as deathless as his most famous character. People ask, what do you get from spiritualism? The first thing you get is that it absolutely removes all fear of death. Secondly, it bridges death for those dear ones whom we may lose. We need have no fear that we are calling them back, for all that we do is to make such a December 11th, 1951. The Cray twins learned early to talk with their fists. The notorious London gangsters came from truculent East End stock. Their grandfathers on both sides of the family took to bare-knuckle boxing in the street for a few extra shillings. And both of them were good. Mad Jimmy Cray, their paternal grandfather was called. And who could forget their maternal grandfather, Jimmy Lee, the Southpaw Cannonball. But the twins, Ronnie and Reggie, took their fists well beyond the streets and parks of East London. They fought in school gymnasiums, at amateur boxing booths in threadbare gloves, and at professional arenas where they became feared contenders. And their boxing careers culminated when they were 18, and both of them fought at the Royal Albert Hall. Reggie, always the more reserved and vigilant fighter, won his match. Ronnie, the perpetual loose cannon, rushed his opponent in a flurry of energy and lost. Ronnie had won four out of his seven professional fights. Reggie had won all eight of his. Maybe they chose this moment to hang up the gloves before anybody noticed the disparity in their skill. The crowd at the Albert Hall that day couldn't have known they were witnessing a dreadful moment of transition. This was the day the Cray twins gave up boxing to focus on other passions. They spent the best years of their lives running protection rackets and murdering people in public with impunity because nobody dared speak against them. And then when it came tumbling down, they spent the rest of their lives in prison, where they received the odd Christmas card from Mike Tyson. They say that when the twins were locked up together, waiting to be taken away to their separate imprisonments, they didn't talk. They didn't tell dark jokes or commiserate. They took off their jackets and shadowboxed. June 11th, 1965. I am a mass of sores and worms. I am false names. 
The prey of Yamantaka, devourer of strange dreams. The prey. This is Allen Ginsberg reading his poem The Change at the International Poetry Incarnation. The day that 17 poets sold out the Albert Hall. I am that I am. I am the man and the atom of hair in my loins. This Nearly 40, balding and besuited, with the bearing of a nearsighted professor, Ginsburg looks like the odd one out at this event, which he helped to plan. In the audience, 7,000 shaggy-haired, brightly-dressed young people smoked weed, shared bottles of wine, ate picnics in the aisles, and pretty soon they were ignoring the performances they'd come to see, which were, mainly, not that good. The Dutch poet Simon Vinkenoov had taken mescaline and interrupted another poet's reading by repeatedly shouting love from the audience. Love! 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 Harry Fainlight had brought a poem about LSD, but he'd taken too many amphetamines to read it. Ginsburg himself was quite drunk. But none of this mattered. The counterculture had made it to the Albert Hall. And they'd keep coming back. The late 60s found the Albert Hall hosting concerts by Jimi Hendrix, Cream, Frank Zappa. It was an awkward transition for a Victorian concert hall and a trying time for its caretaker's stiff upper lips. Pink Floyd drove a bridge too far when they fired cannons and let off a pink smoke bomb at the end of their concert in 1969. They were banned from the hall for life, though they did somehow manage to perform there one more time before 1972. That year, the Albert Hall banned rock concerts altogether, citing property damage caused by too much stomping. This ban didn't last either, but the point is, the relationship between the youth culture of the late 60s and an establishment institution like the Royal Albert Hall was never going to be simple. But you can't deny the significance of that moment when young people filled the hall to hear 17 poets speak directly to them. This is my spirit and physical shape I inhabit this universe. They recognized each other in their thousands. At last, they realized this thing that was happening, whatever it was, was bigger than the hundred-odd people who could pack into an independent bookshop or the dance floor of an underground club. They could book the biggest, oldest, most august concert hall in London, and they could fill it. Halfway through the 60s, the 60s had begun. It's hard to imagine Victoria and Albert approving of any of this. Beat poetry, militant activism, ghosts. Okay, actually they would have been totally fine with ghosts. Everybody was cool about ghosts back then. But every one of these events plays into Prince Albert's vision for the hall. A place for culture to happen. I'm Matthew Parsons. Next time on Ghost Echoes, we're going to crash a house party.
Consequence Podcast Network.